Section 001 of The Man Who Laughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John D. Nugent. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Preliminary Chapter Ursus, Part One. Ursus and Homo were fast friends. Ursus was a man, Homo a wolf. Their dispositions tallied. It was the man who had christened the wolf. Probably he had also chosen his own name. Having found Ursus the fit for himself, he had found Homo fit for the beast. Man and wolf turned their partnership to account at fairs, at village fetes, at the corners of streets where passers-by throng, and out of the need which people seemed to feel everywhere to listen to idle gossip and to buy quack medicine. The wolf, gentle and courteously subordinate, diverted the crowd. It is a pleasant thing to behold the tameness of animals. Our greatest delight is to see all the varieties of domestication parade before us. This it is which collects so many folks on the road of royal processions. Ursus and Omo went about from crossroad to crossroad, from the high street of Aberystwyth to the high street of Jedburgh, from countryside to countryside, from shire to shire, from town to town. One market exhausted, they went to another. Ursus lived in a small van upon wheels, which Armal was civilized enough to draw by day and guard by night. On bad roads, up hills, and where there were too many ruts, or there was too much mud, the man buckled the trace round his neck and pulled fraternally side by side with the wolf. They had thus grown old together. They encamped at haphazard on a common, in the glade of a wood, on the waste patch of grass where roads intersect, at the outskirts of villages, at the gates of towns, in market-places, in public walks, on the borders of parks, before the entrances of churches. When the cart drew up on a fair green, when the gossips ran up open-mouthed and the curious made a circle round the pair, Ursus harangued, and Omal approved. Amal, with a bowl in his mouth, politely made a collection among the audience. They gained their livelihood. The wolf was lettered, likewise the man. The wolf had been trained by the man, or had trained himself unassisted, to diverse wolfish acts, which swelled the receipts. Above all things, do not degenerate into a man, his friend would say to him. Never did the wolf bite. The man did now and then. At least to bite was the intent of Ursus. He was a misanthrope, and to italicize his misanthropy he had made himself a juggler. But to live also, for the stomach has to be consulted. Moreover, this juggler misanthrope, whether to add to the complexity of his being or to perfect it, was a doctor. To be a doctor is little. Ursus was a ventriloquist. You heard him speak without his moving his lips. 
he counterfeited so as to deceive you any one's accent or pronunciation he imitated voices so exactly that you believed you heard the people themselves all alone he simulated the murmur of a crowd and this gave him a right to the title of ingostrimythos which he took he reproduced all sorts of cries of birds as of the thrush the wren the pippet lark otherwise called the great cheaper and the ringoso all travellers like himself so that at times when the fancy struck him he made you aware either of a public thoroughfare filled with the uproar of men or of a meadow loud with the voices of beasts at one time stormy as a multitude at another fresh and serene as the dawn such gifts although rare exists in the last century a man called chuzel who imitated the mingled utterances of men and animals and who counterfeited all the cries of beasts was attached to the person of buffon to serve as a menagerie ursus was sagacious contradictory odd and inclined to the singular expositions which we term fables he had the appearance of believing in them and this impudence was part of his humour he read people's hands opened books at random and drew conclusions told fortunes taught that it is perilous to meet a black mare still more perilous as you start for a journey to hear yourself accosted by one who knows not whither you are going and he called himself a dealer in superstitions he used to say there is one difference between me and the archbishop of canterbury i avow what i am hence it was that the archbishop justly indignant had him one day before him but ursus cleverly disarmed his grace by reciting a sermon he had composed upon christmas day which the archbishop learnt by heart and delivered from the pulpit as his own in consideration thereof the archbishop pardoned ursus as a doctor ursus wrought cures by some means or other he made use of aromatics he was versed in simples he had made the most of the immense powder which lies in a heap of neglected plants such as the hazel the catkin the white alder the white bryony the mealy tree the traveller's joy the buckthorn he treated thysis with the sundew at opportune moments he would use the leaves of the spurge which plucked at the bottom are a purgative and plucked at the top an emetic he cured sore throat by means of the vegetable excrescence called juicier he knew the rush which cures the ox and the mint which cures the horse he was well acquainted with the beauties and virtues of the herb mandragora which as everyone knows is of both sexes he had many recipes he cured burns with the salamander wool of which according to pliny nero had a napkin ursus possessed a retort and a flask he effected transmutations he sold panaceas it was said of him that he had once been for a short time in bedlam they had done him the honour to take him for a madman but had set him free on discovering that he was only a poet 
this story was probably not true. We have all to submit to some legend about us. The fact is, Ursus was a bit of a savant, a man of taste, and an old Latin poet. He was learned in two forms. He hypocrisized and he penderized. He could have vied in bombast with Rapin and Vida. He could have composed Jesuit tragedies in a style not less triumphant than that of Father Beru. It followed from his familiarity with the venerable rhythms and meters of the ancients that he had a peculiar figures of speech and a whole family of classical metaphors. He would say of a mother, followed by her two daughters, there is a dactyl, of a father preceded by his two sons, there is an anapost, and of a little child walking between his grandmother and grandfather, there is an amphimissier. So much knowledge could only end in starvation. <laughs> the school of Salerno says, eat little and often. Ursus ate little and seldom, thus obeying one half the precept and disobeying the other. But this was the fault of the public, who did not always flock to him, and who did not often buy. Ursus was wont to say, the expectoration of a sentence is a relief. The wolf is comforted by its howl, the sheep by its wool, the forest by its finch, woman by her love, and the philosopher by his epiphonema. Ursus at a pinch composed comedies, which in recital he all acted. This helped to sell the drugs. Among other works he had composed an heroic pastoral in the honor of Sir Hugh Middleton, who in 1608 brought a river to London. The river was lying peacefully in Hertfordshire, twenty miles from London. The knight came and took possession of it. He brought a brigade of six hundred men, armed with shovels and pickaxes, set to breaking up the ground, scooping it out in one place, raising it in another, now thirty feet high, now twenty feet deep, made wooden aqueducts high in air, and at different points constructed eight hundred bridges of stone, bricks, and timber. One fine morning the river entered London, which was short of water. Ursus transformed all these vulgar details into a fine eclogue between the Thames and the new river, in which the former invited the latter to come to him, and offered her his bed, saying, I am too old to please women, but I am rich enough to pay them. An ingenious and gallant conceit to indicate how Sir Hugh Middleton had completed the work at his own expense. Ursus was great in soliloquy, of a disposition at once unsociable and talkative, desiring to see no one, yet wishing to converse with someone, he got out of the difficulty by talking to himself. Any one who has lived a solitary life knows how deeply seated monologue is in one's nature. Speech imprisoned frets to find a vent. To harangue space is an outlet. 
to speak aloud when alone is as it were to have a dialogue with the divinity which is within it was as is well known a custom of socrates he declaimed to himself luther did the same ursus took after those great men he had the hermaphrodite faculty of being his own audience he questioned himself answered himself praised himself blamed himself you heard him in the street soliloquizing in his van the passers-by who have their own way of appreciating clever people used to say he is an idiot as we have just observed he abused himself at times but there were times also when he rendered himself justice one day in one of those elocutions addressed to himself he was heard to cry out i have studied vegetation in all its mysteries in the stalk in the bud in the sepal in the stamen in the carpal in the ovule in the spore in the theca and in the apothecium i have thoroughly sifted chromatics osmosy and chymosy that is to say the formation of colours of smell and of taste there was something fatuous doubtless in the certificate which ursus gave to ursus but let those who have not thoroughly sifted chromatics osmosy and chymosy cast the first stone at him <laughs> fortunately ursus had never gone into the low countries there they would certainly have weighed him to ascertain whether he was of the normal weight above or below which a man is a sorcerer in holland this weight was sagely fixed by law nothing was simpler or more ingenious it was a clear test they put you in a scale and the evidence was conclusive if you broke the equilibrium too heavy you were hanged too light you were burned to this day the scales in which sorcerers were weighed may be seen at Udwater, but they are now used for weighing cheeses. How religion has degenerated! Ursus would certainly have had a crow to pluck with these scales. In his travels he kept away from Holland, and he did well. Indeed, we believe that he used never to leave the United Kingdom. However this may have been, he was very poor and morose, and having made the acquaintance of Alma in a wood, a taste for a wandering life had come over him. He had taken the wolf into partnership, and with him had gone forth on the highways, living in the open air the great life of chance. He had a great deal of industry and of reserve, and great skill in everything connected with healing operations, restoring the sick to health, and in working wonders peculiar to himself. He was considered a clever mountebank and a good doctor. As may be imagined, he passed for a wizard as well. Not much, indeed, only a little, for it was unwholesome in those days to be considered a friend of the devil. To tell the truth, Ursus, by his passion for pharmacy and his love of plants, laid himself open to suspicion, seeing that he often would gather herbs in rough thickets where grew Lucifer's salads, and where, as has been proved by the Councillor de l'Ancre, there is a risk of meeting in the evening a mist, a man who comes out of the earth, blind to the right eye, barefooted, without a cloak, and a sword by his side. 
but for the matter of that ursus although eccentric in a mandarin disposition was too good a fellow to invoke or disperse hail to make faces appear to kill a man with the torment of excessive dancing to suggest dreams fair or foul and full of terror and to cause the birth of cocks with four wings he had no such mischievous tricks he was incapable of certain abominations such as for instance speaking german hebrew or greek without having learned them which is a sign of unpardonable wickedness or of a natural infirmity proceeding from a morbid humor if ursus spoke latin it was because he knew it he would never have allowed himself to speak syriac which he did not know besides it is asserted that syriac is the language spoken in the midnight meetings at which uncanny people worship the devil in medicine he justly preferred galen to cardan cardan although a learned man being but an earthworm to galen to sum up ursus was not one of those persons who live in fear of the police his van was long enough and wide enough to allow of his lying down in it on a box containing his not very sumptuous apparel he owned a lantern several wigs and some utensils suspended from nails among which were musical instruments he possessed besides a bearskin with which he covered himself on his days of grand performance he called this putting on full dress he used to say i have two skins this is the real one pointing to the bearskin the little house on wheels belonged to himself and to the wolf besides his house his retort and his wolf he had a flute and a violoncello on which he played prettily he concocted his own elixirs his wits yielded him enough to sup on sometimes in the top of his van was a hole through which passed the pipe of a cast-iron stove so close to his box as to scorch the wood of it the stove had two compartments in one of them ursus cooked his chemicals and in the other his potatoes at night the wolf slept under the van amicably secured by a chain almost hair was black that of ursus gray ursus was fifty unless indeed he was sixty he accepted his destiny to such an extent that as we have just seen he ate potatoes the trash on which at that time they fed pigs and convicts he ate them indignant but resigned he was not tall he was long he was bent and melancholy the bowed frame of an old man is the settlement in the architecture of life nature had formed him for sadness he found it difficult to smile and he had never been able to weep so that he was deprived of the consolation of tears as well as the palliative of joy an old man is a thinking ruin and such a ruin was ursus he had the loquacity of a charlatan the learnedness of a prophet the irascibility of a charged mine such was ursus in his youth he had been a philosopher in the house of a lord this was one hundred eighty years ago 
when men were more like wolves than they are now. Not so very much, though. Preliminary Chapter, Part 2 Omo was no ordinary wolf. From his appetite for medlars and potatoes, he might have been taken for a prairie wolf, from his dark hide for a lechion, and from his howl, prolonged into a bark, for a dog of Chile. But no one has as yet observed the eyeball of a dog of Chile sufficiently to enable us to determine whether he be not a fox, and Omo was a real wolf. He was five feet long, which is a fine length for a wolf, even in Lithuania. He was very strong. He looked at you askance, which was not his fault. He had a soft tongue, with which he occasionally licked Ursus. He had a narrow brush of short bristles on his backbone, and he was lean with the wholesome leanness of a forest life. Before he knew Ursus, and had a carriage to draw, he thought nothing of doing his fifty miles a night. Ursus, meeting him in the thicket near a stream of running water, had conceived a high opinion of him from seeing the skill and sagacity with which he fished out crayfish, and welcomed him as an honest and genuine Kuparo wolf of the kind called crab-eater. As a beast of burden, Ursus preferred Omo to a donkey. He would have felt repugnance to having his hut drawn by an ass. He thought too highly of the ass for that. Moreover, he had observed that the ass, a four-legged thinker little understood by men, has a habit of cocking his ears uneasily when philosophers talk nonsense. In life, the ass is a third person between our thoughts and ourselves, and acts as a restraint. As a friend, horses preferred Omo to a dog considering that the love of a wolf is more rare. Hence it was that Omo sufficed for Ursus. Omo was for Ursus more than a companion. He was an analogue. Ursus used to pat the wolf's empty ribs, saying, I have found the second volume of myself. Again he said, When I am dead, anyone wishing to know me need only study Omo. I shall leave a true copy behind me. The English law, not very lenient to beasts of the forest, might have picked a quarrel with the wolf, and have put him to trouble for his assurance in going freely about the towns. But Omo took advantage of the immunity granted by a statute of Edward the Fourth to servants. Every servant in attendance on his master is free to come and go. Besides, a certain relaxation of the law had resulted with regard to wolves, in consequence of its being the fashion of the ladies of the court under the later Stuarts to have, instead of dogs, little wolves, caudives about the size of cats, which were brought from Asia at great cost. Ursus had communicated to Omo a portion of his talents, such as to stand upright, to restrain his rage into sulkiness, to growl instead of howling, etc. And on his part, the wolf had taught the man what he knew, to do without a roof, without bread and fire, to prefer hunger in the woods to slavery in a palace. 
the van hut and vehicle in one which traversed so many different roads which out without however leaving great britain had four wheels with shafts for the wolf and a splinter bar for the man the splinter bar came into use when the roads were bad the van was strong although it was built of light boards like a dovecot in front there was a glass door with a little balcony used for orations which had something of the character of the platform tempered by an air of the pulpit at the back there was a door with a practicable panel by lowering the three steps which turned on a hinge below the door access was gained to the hut which at night was securely fastened with a bolt and lock rain and snow had fallen plentifully on it it had been painted but of what color it was difficult to say change of season being to vans what changes of rain are to courtiers in front outside was a board a kind of frontispiece on which the following inscription might once have been deciphered it was in black letters on a white ground but by degrees the characters had become confused and blurred by friction gold loses every year a fourteenth hundred part of its bulk this is what we called the wear hence it follows that on fourteen hundred millions of gold in circulation throughout the world one million is lost annually this million dissolves into dust flies away floats about is reduced to atoms charges drugs weighs down consciences amalgamates with the souls of the rich whom it renders proud and with those of the poor whom it renders brutish <laughs> the inscription rubbed and blotted by the rain and by the kindness of nature was fortunately illegible for it is possible that its philosophy concerning the annihilation of gold at the same time both enigmatical and lucid might not have been to the taste of the sheriffs the provost marshals and other bigwigs of the law english legislation did not trifle in those days it did not take much to make a man a felon the magistrates were ferocious by tradition, and cruelty was a matter of routine. The judges of assize increased and multiplied. Jeffreys had become a breed. End of section 001 Recording by John D. Nugent, Van Nuys, California